You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's sermon scripture comes from Mark 5, verses 21 through 42. It's Mark 5, 21 through 42. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much. Who had suffered much under many physicians. And And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him. I'm sorry. It's a good word. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who who said, "Your, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. 
My name's Casey. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Free City. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, we are uh, in the front half of walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, what, what we're really looking at as we walk through the Gospel of Mark is really modeling uh, Jesus' prayer. He taught us how to pray, and he said, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy, thy will be done, which finds its all se- itself in the progressive, meaning it's happening. Meaning Jesus was saying, I am bringing the kingdom of God, and we see it in his actions. And so as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're focusing on the actions of Jesus. And, and so if you look and see sections that we skipped, it's not that those sections aren't really, really important. A lot of them are the teaching sections or the, or the parable sections, which are, which are crucial. But we're focusing on what Jesus is doing because we think in the doing of that, we see that he is bringing the kingdom of God for people around him who find themselves suffering or in unawares, not knowing what's going on or what is this life really all about. And so uh, typically I, I have like an intro uh, story or something. I, I, I don't have any of that, which you should be more disappointed than that. But anyways... But I do, within this text, I see so many questions. Like, 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 like what do you do when, when God seems to be doing all the wrong things, when God seems to be making like, the wrong decisions? Or, or what do you do when, you, when you're just sitting there and you're wondering? Like, does Jesus see the problems, or, or why is he delaying? Like, what is he not? He's not present right now, seemingly so. Or have you ever wondered? Why God is just taking his sweet time? Like, where is he? Or have you ever just been perplexed or, or maybe even enraged that Jesus is helping someone else with seemingly a smaller or lesser problem than what you have, but you're just sitting there waiting? Like in these two miracles, in both of these miracles, like all these questions are coming from different angles where like both Jairus and the unnamed woman, they both have pressing problems. They both see Jesus as the solution. They're both desperate to get there, to find him, to ask for help. They do it in very, very different ways. And I think what you're going to see is that he actually, Jesus actually asked for way more than what they were willing to bring. But he also gave them way more than they were asking for. And so really, like, we're going to have just two, two points. And so the two points that we're going to look at is we're going to look at first the decisions and timing of Jesus. So decisions and timing, and then we're going to focus on the gives and takes of Jesus. Like, what he gives, but what he asks for. And so, like, just jumping in, like, the decisions and timing of Jesus. Like, you could say questions all around it where it's like, what do I do when Jesus' decisions and his timings for my life seem wrong? Or, or they seem too little or too late, or they seem delayed. Like, what do I do? And so we come in on this story, and we see Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and this unnamed woman, and they're so similar. They're so similar in how they think and what they're willing to do and how they're trying to get there and the desperation that they feel. But yet they are worlds apart. Like, like, it's almost a moment where it's like they couldn't be more opposites on the social spectrum. And then how Jesus responds to both of them. But look right here, verse 21. 
Verse 21, it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And so Jesus, he's coming back from his vacation. Like if you remember last week, like he spent all day teaching. He had a really full week. And so he's like, man, I just got to get away. And so like he dialed up Southwest, you know, $49. Where can it get me? I don't know if I need to come back. And he goes across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it was not the vacation he really was seeking. Like, I mean, have you ever like, man, I just got to get away. And then you get back and you're like, man, I need a vacation for my vacation. Like, if you felt that, it's because you have small kids. I mean, someone told me once, like, I was like, yeah, we just got back from vacation. They're like, whoa, whoa, vacation or a trip? And I'm like, I don't understand the semantics you're coming at me with. And they said, did you take your kids? And I was like, yeah, I took my kids. That's a trip. That's not a vacation. But, I mean, like, if you look at the beginning of this chapter, like, he crosses over and he gets, like, I mean, it is like a scene from, like, Hellraisers. I mean, he finds a guy who doesn't just have a demon. He has a legion of demons. And so he fights an entire legion of demons, and then he delivers this guy. This guy is, like, normal now. Before, he was, like, breaking chains and cutting himself. Like, it was really terrifying. And so he finds this guy. He helps this guy, fights a legion of demons. The demons say, can we go into the, you know, the pigs? He's like, ah, yeah, sure, go into the pigs. All the pigs, like, massacre themselves. You can't unsee that. He couldn't sleep for probably a week, you know? And then he gets kicked out of his VRBO. They say, go back. And so Jesus gets back, and the crowds have heard he's coming back, and they're there. And so it just picks right back up in verse 22. And so verse 22 says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And so Jairus heard that Jesus was here, worked through the crowd, ran to find him in the streets, and he finds him. Like, like a ruler of the synagogue, like patron ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, like he would have been a very prestigious lay leader. Like it's kind of like a title where you take care of all the business that's going on. The elders, they would have nom, nom, nomified, that's not a word, nominated, nominated, not nomified. They would have nominated you and you would have served for all the physical things in the synagogue and for all the business relation. And so he knew about Jesus, but he knew about Jesus from a pretty controversial side. Jesus kept bringing up these Sabbath controversies. Think about all the things that were coming across his desk. Think about like all the stories that he heard by the water cooler, by the coffee pot. We're like, can you believe Jesus had the audacity to heal that guy? I mean, clearly on the Sabbath he shouldn't do that. But all of a sudden his daughter's sick. And all of a sudden the emphasis of that sentence changes. Had the audacity to heal that guy. Jairus would have been well-known. He would have been well-connected, probably really, really wealthy, probably really educated, had a great reputation, probably really, really religious. But he was also desperate. He was also incredibly desperate because all his connections, all his reputation that could hold, all his wealth and power, all of a sudden it was impotent to solve a problem. His daughter was dying. And so we see that in verse 23. And so Jairus, 
implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Like, like think about that. Like, think about how Jairus would have felt. His little girl had gotten sick. The fever had refused to yield. She grew weaker and weaker. All the doctors who looked at her were complexed. They gave grave diagnoses. Jairus feared what was next. Don't, don't you know that he knew what was coming? He knew that the future didn't look good, like he was out of help, he was out of options, like he was fearful. He was ready for what was coming. And then he heard that Jesus had reached the shores of Capernaum, desperately running out into the street, desperately trying to get there, desperately willing to risk whatever. Like, like, if you think about all this to stop this pending grief, the pending grief that was coming, they couldn't stop the coming death of his baby girl. So Jairus had heard about Jesus, probably on all the controversial sides of everything that happened. Now Jairus had heard that Jesus was back, and so he runs out there. He tries to find him. He finds him. He brings the question. He says, can you do anything for my girl? Can you come? Look at what he actually asked. Can you come lay your hands on her that she might live? Because it's not that she's just sick. Look at verse 23. At the point of death, Jesus was all that he had left. And so he found him. He hit his knees. Can you come lay your hands? And the moment where Jesus says, let's go. What do you think he feared the most in that moment? See, he might have feared, like, what if Jesus said, no, 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 you work for this synagogue. You're giving me all kinds of trouble. He might have feared that. But Jesus said, yes, what would he fear the most now? He would fear time. Time. Like, she's at the point of death. We've got to get across town. We've got to go. We've got to get there. You've got to lay your hands upon her to make her live. Time was the enemy. Time was the threat. Time was of essence. This was the moment where you, know, you turn the sirens on, you hit the gas, it's the you better move out of the way moment. There's no time to waste. But Jesus seemed to waste so much time. Look at verse 24, it goes on. It says, And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Like, if you were Jairus, you could imagine, like, man, we got in the wrong emergency vehicle. Like, we should have gotten the Dodge Charger, but we got into that Ford Soccer Mom vehicle, you know, whatever. That's just not real impressive. Like, we got in the wrong vehicle, like this throng around him, verse 25, and then it says, And there was a woman, the unnamed woman enters in, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She too had heard about the reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She's a lot like Jairus. Like, like she, like Jairus, had a problem. 
that money hadn't been able to fix. It says that she spent all that she had and was no better, but actually grew worse. Like the things that she was seeking to help her, like the medications that she was, what she thought would surely fix me was actually making her worse. Like just for a moment. Whatever problems that you've identified and whatever solutions you've come with, they might cause more damage than what you think. But she was a lot like Jairus in that she had suffered and feared what the future might bring. In verse 25, it said she had been doing this for 12 years. That's a long time. Or, or then she, like Jairus, had heard about the controversial Jesus who had healed others and the rumors that he had reached the shores of the street. And she said, if I can only touch him, if I can get to Jesus, this desperation that she would have felt, she sought Jesus for help. If I could only get to him, maybe. So verse 29, and immediately after she touched him, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, it just seems strange that we get that detail. Jesus perceiving that the power had gone out from him. Uh, that the word that's used power there, it's, it's dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. It means explosive power. So Jesus felt like the touch of faith. It touched him. He felt something come out. But like we don't ever see this anywhere else. Like when he calmed the storm, the raging little hurricane, it didn't say, man, I need a cup of coffee. Or, or, or when he fought the legion of demons, he didn't be like, I could sure use a nap. Like we don't see any of that. But all of a sudden, someone who's been separated, who's been downcast, lifting her up, he witnesses it brought him weakness. Like I, I think that's actually really important. I, I think that's really, really important because Jesus knows what it takes to heal us. Jesus knows what it takes to elevate us out of an unclean place to make us presentable before God. He knows exactly what it takes. Jesus knew the cost. He felt the cost. He paid the cost. Jesus went to the cross that our ailments, that we might be presentable to God once again. He felt it. He turns around and he starts questioning who does it. And so he says, who touched me? Look at what the disciples say. In verse 31, he says, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Like, like look at all the time that's going here. Jesus stopped the ambulance procession. Jesus sought the person who touched him. He had to argue with his disciples who were like, Jesus, are you serious? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. There is no personal space here. He had to convince a scared, embarrassed woman who wanted to stay anonymous in a crowd to identify herself. And then look, he says, Jesus heard her story. It says, it says in verse 33, the whole truth. How do you think Jairus felt in that moment? 
Like, how do you think he felt? Like, the only fear I have now is if Jesus gets there in time and touches my baby girl. That's the fear I have. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like doing some sort of investigation who touched me. He's having these arguments. Like, no, 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 someone actually touched me. Everyone's like, everyone touched you. It's a mosh pit. And then he sits and he listens to this woman's story. And then he pronounces, like, Look at verse 34, and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you think, do you think Jairus was getting a little anxious? What if, what if we're late? What, what if we miss the opportunity? What if it's metastasized? What, what if we get there and the resources aren't there? What if you're late, Jesus? Why are you taking time to hear the story? She's already healed. Let's go. What if Jesus is late? Like, I mean, look at the next verse, verse 35. <clears throat> While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What do you think Jairus thought about Jesus right then? Wow, yeah, you, you, said, you said you would come, but you were late. Where were you then? Wow, wow you took your time. Like, I, I don't know if you know how this is. She's been sick for 12 years. Like, she could probably wait a couple more hours. That is like a chronic problem. And this is an acute problem. That's the equivalent of like an ER doc passing up on a little girl choking to go to an old lady who has like fibromyalgia to get her medical story. Like, we're not saying the pain's not important. We're not saying it's not something we should give ear to. We're saying in that moment, there is chronic and there is acute. That is like mal practice have you ever looked at jesus and said what are you doing what all do you think was running through the mind of jairus when he heard your daughter is dead like have you ever felt like maybe god's choices for your life maybe they're not just bad what if they're negligent? Or, or maybe the timing of God in your life, not, not just like bad or a little bit off. What if it's altogether too late? Have you ever felt like the Lord was taking his sweet time and didn't see or saw where you were but didn't care? Have you ever feared that he would be too late? Have you ever wondered why other people's seemingly smaller, less pressing problems seem to get all of Jesus' attention while you're standing on the sidelines saying, but what about me? I think it's all right there with Jairus. But what if, what if it's not Jesus will not be hurried, but he still loves you? What if it is Jesus will not be hurried because he loves you? Like when, when the timing of Jesus and the decisions of Jesus for your life seem all wrong, does he love you? The timing and decisions of Jesus, the delays of God, like what do they make your heart say about God himself? So first, timing and decisions. Second, 
the give and takes of Jesus. Like we could say it this way, Jesus delays ask for more from Jairus and the unnamed woman than what they wanted to give, but they also gave so much more. Like look at verse 36. But Jesus overhearing, overhearing what was just said, your daughter's dead, don't waste his time anymore. But Jesus overhearing what was said, looks at the synagogue ruler and says, do not fear, only believe. That is a big ask. It's like Jesus looking at him, maybe a little smile on his face, I don't know, but saying, just trust me. I still have time. Time is of no essence for me. Trust me. And so Jesus' delay asked more from Jairus than what he brought. Like if you think about it, like he brought faith to cure like a sickness. He brought faith. If you could touch her, you could hear her. But all of a sudden she's dead and now it's all kinds of more faith. Don't fear. Just believe. But Jesus' delay also asked more from the unnamed woman. It's a little harder to see, but like looking back at verse 28 all the way through 33, like she wanted to anonymously touch him. She knew she needed to get to Jesus, but she didn't want to be called out. She kind of wanted a touch and go kind of healing, like a touch and run. Like she wanted just that. And actually, like if you think about it, her, her faith was kind of superstitious. You know, if I touch him, I'll be okay. But yet Jesus makes all this time, but she actually, he actually asked for way, way more. See, her her chronic bleeding had had made her unclean. I mean, think about like all the situations that she was pushed out of. People didn't want to get close to her. Like this is a little bit more when he says, he starts to look around from her. This is more than your friend asking you to toast, you know, give the toast at the wedding. Like you're like, man, I'm, I don't really like public speaking. I mean, it's more than that. It's standing before everyone and it's saying, yeah, I, I've been unclean. This has defined me. And I actually crossed some, some boundaries because, see, I can't even go to church because I'm unclean. And now I touched a rabbi, so technically he can't go to church until he does the prescribed you know, uh, rituals, until he does the prescribed, uh, what am I thinking, where you kill something? Sacrifices, not rituals, sacrifices. Or until I sit out. Like, think about the, the, the social, you know, faux poo of that. Like, like, what is she to think? Like, what if she stands him up? What if Jesus stands her up and ridicules her? See, do you ever feel like your problems are at best a nuisance to God and a nuisance to others? What if I just get outed and nothing happens? She asked a lot, he asked a lot more from her. But they also got so much more. Like, I don't even need to say it, but Jesus, his delay gave the shamed woman more than she had hoped she would get. It declared her clean in front of all. Like, she was poor. She was sick. She was a woman. Jairus was wealthy. He was uh, uh, the ruler of the synagogue. He had status, and he was a man. Like, Like, look who's waiting on who in this. Like Jesus is reversing these roles. He's like, no, we have all the time in the world. Tell me your story. He stops everything. He tells those who are important to wait. He makes time for her. Someone who everyone else would have avoided and passed by. He asked for far more. He asked for a public confession, but he gave her so much more. He publicly affirmed her worth and restoration. 
Jesus took her quasi-superstitious faith and he gave her a lifelong, sustaining, relational faith. He asked for more, but he gave more. See, Jesus' delay, it also gave Jairus more than he came for. He gave his daughter back from the dead. Look at verse 37. In verse 37, it says, And he allowed no one to follow except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And so once again, remember, like Mark is recording Peter's gospel, so we always get in the inner room with Peter. And so Peter's like, this is what happened, man. He pushed everyone else away. We're the ones that came into the house. No one else was allowed in. It says, they came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, this would have been both like real tears and put on tears because Jairus was a powerful man, and so he would have had professional weepers and wailers come to show up. It would have been really, really loud. And look what happens in verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Like, I, I know right now, like, we, we read this and we're like, Man, those silly people laughing at Jesus. I would never do that. You never laugh? You never see the promises of God. I'm not talking like the belly laugh, like that's funny. I'm talking like the the sarcastic laugh, like are you serious? You never laugh. You see, I mean, we didn't hear about it, but when Jesus told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, I bet some people had a mocking laugh. Or, Or right here, he's telling, I'm about to raise this child from the dead. My prognosis is more important than your prognosis. There were mocking laughter. Or, or, like later on the cross, the resurrection will loom in Jesus' death, and he will be mocked with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Jesus said, she's not dead, she's only asleep. It's as if death is waking her from a nap. Verse 40, it goes on, it says, But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. See, the unnamed woman's raising up was public. She's unnamed. She was in the shadows, and Jesus stopped everything, and he lifted her up, and he brought her to the middle and said, let me hear your story, and he pronounced her clean. But here, it's totally different, but here, Jesus will prescribe a private room of resurrection. Jesus leads the private shamed woman to publicly confess but the public Jairus to a private room of prayer. Like, why so different? I I don't know. Like, who who are you? I I don't know. Like, 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 is this something that God's leading you to bring out before more people? Or is this something that he's like, man, I'm gonna do it and it's a small group that's gonna witness it? I don't know. You might just start with whatever your proclivity is, whichever point. If it's something you wanna make really public up on Facebook, God might be leading you to make that a little bit more private. Or if it's something that you're really scared that people might know or you don't know what's going to happen, he might be leading to bring God's people a little bit more in. Like, I don't know. But it goes on, verse 41, listen to this scene. In this private room of resurrection, it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, in Aramaic, probably her heart language, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. You know, sometimes, some skeptics have looked at this and said, hey, see, this is more like a resuscitation than a, than a resurrection. Um, but if you read this in Luke, if you're in the Bible reading plan, like if you read this in Luke, it says very plainly, her spirit returned. And so the eyewitnesses had no doubt that she was dead, had no doubt that Jesus reached in and spoke to her heart and took her by the hand and brought her from death to life. The eyewitnesses had no doubt. Look at what Jesus said. Like the, the words that she said in Aramaic, Talitha Kumai, they, they do literally mean little girl. But, but it's more of like, a, like, a, like what you would say to your daughter, like, like a baby girl. It's more like saying sweetheart. Talitha, more like sweetheart or sweetie or honey. And then when it says Kumai, it's not like raised up by being raised from the dead. It's more like rise and wake up. And so it's like Jesus takes her by the hand, how a parent would wake up a napping child to say, wake up and experience the beauty of the day. Jesus reached down through death, takes her by the hand, and the first thing that she sees upon waking is the presence of his gaze with a small crowd in wonder around her. Believer, one day that'll be all of us who trust and treasure Jesus. Jesus will reach down through death and take you by the hand and pull you up. And the next life, the first thing you see is the gaze of Christ and a small crowd gathered around to witness. Like, but don't miss this. Jesus takes her by the hand and he gently lifts her out of death into his present gaze by speaking to her in a way that connected with her heart. He could have said it in Hebrew. He could have said it in Greek. But he spoke it to her in her heart language. What if the only way that Jesus can speak through to your heart is to go through your fears of his decisions in timeline? What, what if the, the only way, what if the only way is the delays of God is to communicate through our fears and anxieties in the heart language we need to hear? What if that's the only way to get through us? What if we have to be in a moment? What if the God that we're praying to to fix the situation, what if he has more information that says, I need to wait? Is that crazy? Like, I want to give you a definition of sin. A definition of sin is what seems right to me. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they looked at God, they looked at what he said. You know, Satan was like, hey, this fruit's pretty good. And like, well, it seems right to me. That's a definition of sin. What if your timing of I've got to be through it, what if God's saying, I have more information? There is something clouded in your heart that you need to see. Just wait, just trust. And I just want to leave with this. Do you think Jesus ever had to wrestle with bad timing? Do you think Jesus ever looked up to God and said, can we just delay the excruciating moment of this time and can we get through it to the end? 
The Gospel of Mark says yes. See, in the Gospel of Mark, when we get to Mark 14, we're going to see Jesus in the garden praying. And he prays this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Take this moment away. Let's just get to the end. Whatever is coming next, can we just fast forward through that? Can we get through it? Can we not have this painful delay? Can we get to the other side? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus saw the cross coming. He looked at his father and he asked, is there a way to get to the end faster? Do I have to go through this painful delay of the cross? What would our faith look like if God the Father would have answered that prayer? Is the God that we pray to who's big enough to fix our situation, is he big enough to have a reason for to, de- to delay or to answer it differently? Is the God that we pray to to fix our situation, is he big enough to look at you and say, no, this is not a private matter. This is something you need to share. Is the God that we pray to to fix the moment, is he good when he says, just a couple in the prayer room? Is God delaying something in your life? Could it be for a deeper reason? Is it possible that the God that you would pray to fix a situation is the same God that might have a good reason to delay that situation. Every week, we, um, as we transition, we, we move to the table, although we're not actually moving to the table right now. It's way less cool, but way more efficient. But we remember the delay that Jesus actually asked to miss and the hope that it brings. And it was all summed up in the meal of the Last Supper where he prepared for him, where he said, believers, he looked at his disciples, said, this is my body. And so Christian, this is the broken body of Jesus, broken for you. And then he, he took the wine and he renamed the wine. He said, this is my blood. Christian, the blood of Jesus poured out for your life. Jesus, Lord, I just ask for help. And Lord, I, I just, I know this. I know there are countless people in the room that if I heard their story, I would be just as perplexed at why you're delaying and why you're not answering. I wouldn't have good answers. But Jesus, I also know that if I tried to give good reasons, I would cheapen them. And so, Father, Lord, wherever we are, whether you're drawing us out more in public like the unnamed woman or whether you're moving us more isolated into a room of prayer, your eyes are still the same. Trust me. And, Father, the cross, what we remember every week during communion, it definitely communicates that you're someone we can trust. In Jesus' name, amen.